Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. We're very happy to offer a guest essay for our lectionary this week, written by Michael Fitzpatrick. Michael is a doctoral candidate in philosophy at Stanford University and a parishioner at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Palo Alto, California. In his own words, he loves exploring the Bible, theology, and the Anglican tradition, and dreams of a world where Christians of all denominations set aside their differences and worship God with one voice. His essay is entitled, The Good News That God is For Us, and it's based on electionary readings for July 26, 2020. Before November 2018, few seemed familiar with Paradise, California, the hometown for my wife and her family. Since that fateful month, most of the United States and even many overseas know about Paradise Lost. In a matter of hours, a fire moving at the speed of football fields per second wiped out over 85% of the structures in that quiet community nestled at the foot of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. My in-laws evacuated to spend a sleepless night with friends in neighboring Chico, staring out the bedroom window at the terrifying orange aura pulsating beneath the smoke cloud blacker than the dead of night surrounding it. The next day, my wife flew into Sacramento, the nearest airport, to be with her devastated parents. While she was in flight, a freelance photojournalist she knew, through her work, was tromping into the smoldering remains of the hillside hamlet. Crawling over still warm, blackened logs and through the rubble of lost homes, he came across her parents' house, still standing. Everything had burned around it, but the home stood. My wife's parents had no idea, as they waited by the baggage carousel at Sacramento International Airport. When my wife landed on the tarmac and turned off the airplane mode on her phone, it lit up with a series of photographs in text messages. A few minutes later, she walked out of the security partition into the baggage claim, and after her mom hugged her, my wife held up her phone with the photos emblazoned on the screen. That is what it means to receive good news. As Christians, we are good news people, gospel people. Sometimes I fear that we have forgotten how our faith is supposed to be good news, not just for us, but for everyone. The news outlets these days feature a litany of people who are desperate for some good news. The whole human race is battling the COVID-19 pandemic. In North America and in parts of Europe, the Black Lives Matter movement is pressuring Western societies to finally confront their appalling history of violence towards people of color. As I write this, thousands of Christians are being butchered for their religious identity in Sudan and Nigeria. In a world of such horrors, what distinctive good news can our faith possibly have to offer? Well, let's start with the good news that Jesus himself preached to the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. He taught his followers to receive a new identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom is a society where the love of God is the ruling authority, drying all tears, healing all wounds, reconciling all enemies, flattening all swords into plowshares, rooted in the sacrificial servitude of Jesus as the very incarnation of God so loved the world. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So where do we buy bus tickets to this fabled kingdom? Do we have the workers unite? take over the halls of power, and force everyone to love each other through government legislation? 
In our gospel reading appointed for today, Jesus seems to speak of a better way. Employing a series of arresting, tactile images drawn from mundane peasant life, Jesus describes the good news of the kingdom as like a tiny seed planted in the field of the world, growing into a large bush that fills the land. The good news of the kingdom is a smidgen of yeast dropped into the dough that slowly mixes until the whole batter begins to rise. Jesus' way to end oppression and injustice and poverty and pandemic is to let hearts be transformed person by person through the love of God until this pale blue dot is brimming with kingdom citizens who know God through Jesus. Evangelism and the kingdom go hand in hand. We do not transform the world into the kingdom by our activism. As theologian Georgia Harkness admonishes in her book, Understanding the Kingdom of God, quote, The kingdom of God is God's gift, not a human achievement. That doesn't mean there is no labor for us as kingdom people. We participate in God's work even as we recognize it as God's. As we labor, it is for the justice of the kingdom, not some worldly ideology or political ambition. This may seem very different than what many of us were taught. In my childhood, the good news seemed to be that I would struggle through this life of suffering and persecution only to die and finally go away to be with Jesus somewhere else. In other, more pernicious contexts, the good news was purely negative. I wasn't going to burn forever in a lake of fire. Neither of these messages offer good news to the cries around the world of people who can't breathe in hospitals with too few ventilators, who can't breathe as the strong kneecap of the lawman crushes their windpipe, who can't breathe through all the blood in their lungs from Fulani machetes. Jesus' preaching and embodiment of the kingdom of heaven is good news because it means God has not abandoned this world to sin, but is working now to redeem this world, this history, these suffering people. In a particularly poignant essay entitled The Christian Hope, Bishop John A.T. Robinson writes, quote, Christians are those whose hope is from heaven, not for heaven, or rather, not for heaven as opposed to earth. Their promise is of a renewed cosmos, which will include a new heaven and a new earth, an order, that is to say, in which all things, spiritual and material, shall be fully reconciled in Christ. It is a hope for history, not a release from history. The good news is that through God's only Son, our God has risked everything for our salvation. All things corrupted by sin and death shall be resurrected into new life. Such good news is what animates St. Paul's many effusions throughout his epistle to the church in Rome. The first 11 chapters of Romans work out one of the central hallmarks of the kingdom of heaven, that in God's family there is no distinction between people, Class, race, sexual orientation, wealth, fame, gender, religion, marriage, political party, none of these categories by which we carve up humanity into various tribes counts for or against a person in the kingdom. In this Sunday's epistle, St. Paul is speaking to anyone who has been told their identity precludes them from God's promises. Our union with Christ has given us a new identity, for we are a new creation. Central to this identity is that God is for us. St. Paul then asks, if God is for us, who is against us? Even if we are persecuted and oppressed for our earthly identities, God for us is not earthly, but heavenly, our citizenship in the kingdom. Marked by this identity, the identity wherein our advocate and vindicator is none other than the creator of this universe, justice will reach all of our other identities. God will not cease to fight for us when God did not withhold even the only begotten Son of the Most High, 
who was given up for us all. If even the sacrifice Jesus offered on the cross is worth our redemption, will God not redeem us in all things? Who will bring a charge of abuse against us for our skin color, for the design of our bodies, for our refugee status, for the blood that runs in our veins? It is God who justifies. Who then condemns? God, the righteous judge, has appointed Jesus, who died and was raised, to be our advocate. What persecution is left that can stand against God? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? St. Paul's letter erupts in a verbal fusillade of every evil that he can think of that consumes and destroys human life, asking whether any of it can have final victory over those whose citizenship is in heaven. Can hardship, or anxiety, or starvation, or homelessness, or risk of life, or the ravages of war, separate us from the love of Christ after what he did for us on the cross? No. For the good news of God's kingdom is that when we make Christ Lord of our lives, neither death nor life, neither earthly powers nor the powers of the Spirit, neither COVID-19 nor a future climate catastrophe, neither systemic racism nor religious genocide, neither wildfire nor cancer, nay, nothing in the highest height or the lowest depths of this cosmos or elsewhere in the whole of creation has the power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we commit this day to be people who everywhere live and share the good news of the love of God in Christ that can never, ever be taken away and that will, in the end, redeem this fallen world into a kingdom where the love of Christ is all and in all and all in all. Amen. For books this week, Dan reviews How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Ibram Kendi's previous book, Stamped from the Beginning, was a sweeping intellectual history of racist ideas throughout American history. The book made Kendi, the youngest person ever to win a National Book Award for nonfiction and one of the most important scholarly voices on race in the United States. It also propelled him to become the founding director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research in the summer of 2020, which work he had started at American University. How to Be an Anti-Racist builds upon Kendi's first book about the intellectual ideas of other people, but supplements that with a sustained introspective narrative of his own life journey, and in particular, his gradual awakening to and efforts to overcome his own racism. The book begins when he was 17 and gave a speech about MLK that at the time he thought was radical, but that he now views as an excellent example of having internalized the racist ideas of our culture. He then circles back to the third grade and successive racist experiences throughout his different schools. By the end of the book, he has finished grad school, but not before multiple conversions in the intersectionality of ethnic racism, with bodily racism, cultural racism, color racism, class racism, gender racism, and queer racism. In Kendi's view, our biggest mistake is to shame and blame people, whereas the real problems with racism revolve around power and policies. We cannot educate or persuade or argue people out of racism. Similarly, we wrongly conflate a single individual with stereotypes about a larger group. Central to his outlook is a threefold typology that he articulates at length in his first book of segregationists, assimilationists, and then anti-racists. For Kendi, there is no middle ground. Either you are actively anti-racist and not merely not racist, or you are in fact racist in some sense. The good news, says Kendi, is that racist and anti-racist are not fixed identities. That is, we can all change. 
Another way to say this is that overcoming racism, whether personal or cultural, will be an ongoing struggle that is never finished. Although Kendi argues forcefully for the anti-racist position as the only viable option, he's also careful in his book Stamped to say that he does not see a singular historical force arriving at a post-racial America. I did not see a singular historical force becoming more covert and implicit over time. I did not see a singular historical force taking steps forward and backward on race. I saw two distinct historical forces. I saw a dual and dueling history of racial progress and the simultaneous progression of racism. The racial progress of Obama and the racist progress of Trump embody what he calls our country's never-ending dueling duality. For films this week, Dan reviews Race Matters, America in Crisis. The day after George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police on May 25, 2020, protests erupted in the United States and eventually in 2,000 cities in over 60 countries around the world. While most of these protests were peaceful, others turned violent and involved incidences of police brutality. This PBS NewsHour special originally aired nationwide on June 5, 2020, and attempts to address the outrage over Floyd's murder and the deep wounds of racism that it exposed. At the outset, it observes that we all look at these issues through the lens of race. For example, whereas 58% of whites viewed the protests favorably as a legitimate response, 77% of blacks did. Judy Woodruff begins the first segment by interviewing two black thought leaders, filmmaker Ava DuVernay and Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation. In the second segment, Yamichi Asendor interviews two experts about policing. In the third segment, Amna Nawaz interviews a physician, an investigative reporter for the New York Times, and a Duke University professor about the radical inequities between blacks and whites in economics, education, criminal justice, housing, employment, and healthcare. In the final segment, Charlene Hunter Galt interviews a father and son about the impact of racism on families. We have long passed the time when deniability was an option. What remains to be seen is how we will respond. At a bare minimum, says DuVernay, educate yourself. This documentary helps us to do that. And lastly, for poetry this week, Dreams and Nightmares by Walter Brueggemann. Last night as I lay sleeping, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just, I dreamed of a garden of paradise, well-being all around and a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for all those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more. Last night as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty, for dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares, asking that your healing mercy should override threats that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day, dream us toward health and peace, 
we pray in the real name of Jesus, who exposes our fantasies. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 26th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.